welcome everyone to the uh, Ontolog invited speaker presentation. Today we feature Professor Mark Musen from Stanford Medical Informatics. Uh, th this is Thursday, year 2004, December 9th. And uh, Mark, uh, as some of you might know, started Protege, which is by now the uh, most widely used uh, ontology development platform. Uh, today, Mark is going to give a talk uh, entitled Building Ontologies from the Ground Up When Users Set Out to Model Their Professional Activities. So, uh, it's all yours, Mark. Thank you, Peter. Uh, this is by far the first time in my life I've ever given a talk to 100 people whom I can't see. Uh, whom I, where I cannot see your faces, I can't see your body language, and now I learn you can't see some of my slides. Um, so I'm hoping that as we go through this, you'll be able to interrupt, you'll be able to give me feedback, because otherwise uh, this kind of a monologue is, is going to be very difficult, I, I, I confess, for both of us. Uh, what I want to talk about today is something which is, is familiar to many of you, and I realize that uh, those of you whom I'm talking to come with varying levels of background regarding some of these some of this material, and so I'll try to keep uh, things at a common level if I can. And I realize some of you are, are quite sophisticated in the world of ontologies, and some of you may have just learned about ontologies this morning. But what I want to do is talk about why ontologies have become important, and to emphasize something which I don't think those of us in computer science hear a lot about. And that is that in computer science, we talk about the kinds of knowledge representations that are, that are optimal for ontology, the kinds of modeling decisions that are optimal for ontologies, and basically how we might want to advance the science. That's all very important. But what's interesting is, is that there are thousands of people out in the real world building ontologies every day who don't know anything about the Ontolog Forum, who don't know anything about knowledge representation for that matter. And I think what's very interesting is to see what they're doing, to see what impact it's having, and also to start thinking about how we as a community can try to address the needs of people at the grassroots, recognize their problems, and also provide the kind of guidance that will actually lead to more, more durable solutions. So as I go to the second slide, I just wanted to uh, reiterate the, the, the definition of ontology that Tom Gruber popularized a long time ago, that ontology is a specification of a conceptualization, where we try to think about some application domain, and we try to specify what we think about that domain in some sort of a formal way, a formal way which uh, eliminates ambiguity for us as humans, but also creates a representation which is useful for computers, and I think that's obviously the, the key issue. And although ontology has become something which has sort of permeated the conversation in the past five to ten years, I also want to sort of reemphasize that ontology is very old and that although it really is only in the past decade that I think most of us have felt comfortable talking about ontologies as, as something vital to the development of information technology. Uh, obviously, people in metaphysics have talked about ontology for, for several thousand years, and we have a lot to learn from them, 
And at the same time, we have to recognize that one of the interesting things that we see happening now is the role that people in philosophy have had in shaping knowledge representation and the way in which we have been able to use ontology not only for understanding the world the way Aristotle did, but obviously for much more practical kinds of things. And if you uh, actually had the most recent version of the talk, you would see a, a screen dump of the uh, ontology used by Google for access to websites. And I think one of the things that's most interesting to me is how basically with the advent of the web and the accessibility of so many millions of documents that need to be understood and indexed, that the notion of ontology certainly has become something of, of great practical value and something which we talk about now in, in common parlance. Mark? Uh, yes. This is Kurt Conrad. Uh, could Kurt? you please remind us what slide you're on periodically? Yes, I'm sorry. And I'm realizing, of course, that uh, the version that's on um, the online doesn't have the slide numbers. So I will tell you that right now I'm on slide five. Excellent. Thank you. Okay. And I will try to remember to do that. Um, so I, I think as obviously the ontology group knows very well that the excitement about ontologies has really burgeoned in the past few years as people recognize that the ability to codify what we know about an application area has great implications uh, for all kinds of activities, including information retrieval, information integration, which obviously is great importance to the government, automated translation, decision support, and a whole host of things which stem from the idea of being able to formalize what you know about the world. Um, now I'm on slide six, and I was really quite amused about 10 years ago uh, Newsweek did an analysis of what uh, Newsweek considered to be the up-and-coming people in the Internet world. Number one on the list was a woman you see on the right of this slide who was the first so-called ontologist for Yahoo. And I guess the idea that one would see the word ontologist in Newsweek also impressed me. The idea is that, obviously, long before Google and the ability of search engines with the kind of precision that we have now, what made people able to access the web was a good ontology of what was available online. And it's sort of hard to imagine there was a time when it was possible for Netscape actually to tell you what was new on the web every week, that uh, it, was, it was actually a finite list. Uh, but, in, but in the early days of the web and when people could enumerate what was, what was happening, this, the kind of ontology that allowed people to access uh, Yahoo was obviously enormously instrumental. And since that time, of course, we've seen, in general, the idea of ontologies for access by humans or search engines for getting access to online information, uh, the idea of product catalogs for e-commerce, and the ability to access those kinds of catalogs by intelligent agents is, is obviously burgeoning. The idea of reference terminologies for machine translation, for data interchange, and all the kinds of things that so many of you are, are, are working on. And uh, what is particularly important in my area of work, which is in biomedicine, is the idea of ontologies that can provide standard terms uh, that help describe experimental data. And I'll get to a very specific example of that in a few minutes when I talk about the gene ontology as being perhaps one of the most influential attempts at creating ontologies in biomedicine in recent years. Um, so now, I guess I'm on page uh, slide seven. Uh, and I think what's interesting as we sort of look at what's happening in the world is that um, although most of us took Philosophy 101 as undergraduates and may have disdained what we learned, suddenly philosophers are getting uh, back into vogue. 
And the idea of philosophers who can categorize what exists in the world, or in what, at least what exists in some professional domain, in machine understandable form, are becoming some of the most valuable, some of the most highly paid people in Silicon Valley. Um, and be able, being able to create these kinds of ontologies gives us a structure that allows us to locate and update the kinds of descriptions that we want to make to describe uh, stuff, professional activities, professional uh, entities. And that also gives computers the ability to infer relationships and properties. And um, obviously, the ability to uh, create new abstractions um, that can facilitate uh, the uh, creation of these ontologies is obviously what most of us are, are, are really very excited about. And particularly uh, within the Ontolog Forum, the idea of pr producing uh, ontologies that may have great applicability across domains is something which has been discussed a lot. This slide, if you could see it, just shows. Can I interrupt and ask a question? Yep. Uh, this is Dean Alamang. Hey, Dean. Uh, when when I was an undergraduate, and I took my actually quite a few philosophy courses, there was a philosophy instructor at my university who was one of these sort of loudmouth academics, very opinionated. And he walked around campus with a T-shirt that he had made that says Robert Kraut, ontologist. Now back. <laughs> Back in those days, that word wasn't as well known as it was. I mean, we're talking way before 1995, I'm afraid. Now, what Robert Kraut ontologist meant is that he studied not ontologies, but ontology, the study of what exists and not. Yes. And he could tell you things like, is there a distinction in kind between the way thoughts exist and the way the telephone on my desk exists? Is there a platonic... Um, universe where things really exist, or is there a Cartesian duality, or every, is everything just matter, and our ideas just more kinds of matter? And these are the things that, that his kind of ontologist was studying, and when I was taught ontology back in, in undergraduate, that's what the issues were. Now, the issues that we seem to be facing today when we say, I want to build an ontology of the genome we're talking about things like, well, do we want to separate the chromosome from the gene, from the allele, from and so on? We're talking about terminology, we're talking about domains, and we can talk about having more than one ontology. This doesn't sound like it's the same field of study at all. Well, that's, that, that's a really good point, Dean. And I think one of the, the real battles that we, we face, uh, certainly in those of us who are creating applied ontologies, plural, is that the philosophers still often take a very platonic view of the world. Uh, and you would think that there was no such thing as postmodernism. Uh, when I have conversations with Barry Smith, for example, uh, he shudders at the idea of there being alternative ways of formulating reality. Uh, it bothers him tremendously that sometimes light is a wave and sometimes light is a particle. There can only be one truth, and of course this is a real, a real problem for the philosophers. Not a problem for those of us who are more pragmatic in our approach. And um, I think most, uh, most of us in computer science who actually don't, who are not burdened or contaminated by all the metaphysicians who have insisted that there is only one platonic reality, I think feel much more comfortable being uh, much more open in accepting alternative uh, representations. Uh, I agree with you that the philosophers who taught you and who continue to have debates with me feel uncomfortable with that perspective. But at the same time, the kinds of distinctions that you can make about the world are infinite. 
and obviously for the pragmatic uh, purpose of having an ontology that is going to be useful computationally, we cannot make all of those infinite distinctions. And the distinctions that are relevant for one task, for example, manufacturing a device, are going to be very different from the distinctions you would, you would make about a different task, say, selling that device. And I think uh, the pragmatic approach, which probably makes a lot of metaphysicians turn over, is the idea that we want to focus on views of what exists and that those views actually may have elements that are not necessarily mutually compatible. Okay, that was a very helpful answer, Mark. Thank you. Sure. And so, uh, uh, the suggested merged upper ontology is an effort that many of you are well aware of, which is an effort to try almost in an Aristotelian way to come up with a set of concepts that are extremely uh, abstract and extremely uh, useful for being able to structure all of the low-level ontologies that might be below it. The idea of coming up with a, a structure that can allow you to hang a whole bunch of ontologies onto, if you will. And that's very similar to the psych ontology, which fortunately has an image that appears on slide nine, where, again, gives you the idea of an ontology at the top that talks about temporal things and intangible things and partially tangible things and partially intangible things. And um, really, only the philosophers really understand the difference between something that is partially tangible and partially intangible. But those kinds of ontologies are very useful for coming up with this, this, this very clean upper-level structure. And I think when you look at efforts like OpenPsych and uh, Sumo and Dulce and a number of others, you see what the philosophers can really do as they try to come up with structures that are useful at the top of the world for talking about the very great generalities that we have to deal with. And I think when you, when you listen to computer scientists talk about ontology or ontologies, there's a misconception. Now I'm uh, on slide 10. That is, there's this belief that people who are building ontologies are as smart as Dean is, that they've taken metaphysics, they know computer science, they know knowledge representation, and, oh, by the way, they understand a particular area of content. Uh, that when you look at the kinds of suggested ontologies that philosophers build, like the Sumo ontology we just saw, didn't see, and Dulce, and all the upper-level ontologies, that they're all clean and well-structured and relationships are clear. I think one of the things I really want to drive home in this talk, and maybe this is the, the, the take-home message, is that the, most of the people in the world who are creating ontologies really don't understand the ramifications of what they're doing. They have, and I'm, I'm, I, don't want, I don't mean this to sound pejorative, I'm, I'm just saying that ontologies are being created by people in the trenches who have very pressing uh, professional needs, and as a consequence, they simply don't understand all of the things that you or I might understand as we begin to critique what they're doing. So, uh, let's see, I'm on page 11 now, and I'm basically I'm saying that there are lots of ontology builders who are really not very good philosophers. And what we find as we look at what's happening in the real world is that you have ontologies being created by people who have a job to get done, who have a lot of insight into what they need in the short term to get that job done, but didn't take philosophy 101, uh, don't really understand principles of knowledge representation or computational logic, and frankly, don't really know what they're missing, and even if they did, there simply aren't enough good philosophers to go around, as I say here. 
So uh, what I want to do is just talk about something which is near and dear to me since I deal with this kind of stuff all the time in medical informatics. On page 12 is a slide that introduces the idea of the international classification of diseases. The ICD probably is one of the most important, if not ontologies, at least uh, collections of terms and concepts that is essential for, for medical practice, not only in the, in the United States, but globally. So the ICD is an enumeration of the diseases that, that form the basis uh, of all medical claims and reimbursements in the U.S. So basically, you can't, get, you can't practice medicine and get paid for it unless you subscribe to being able to use the ICD as the basis for representing what is going on in a patient. What's interesting is that the ICD is old. It has its roots in 19th century biostatistics. And it was created not because people wanted to do billing for Medicare, obviously, but because in the 19th century, there was a need to compare death rates in adjoining uh, European countries. And it was important to be able to describe causes of death using the same language in, 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 in Europe. And although this was created basically as a way of categorizing deaths, uh, ICD is used for a lot of things, as you'll see, and it won't go away. So basically, what I find interesting from an ontological perspective is that we take for granted the idea that diseases even exist. And what is amazing to me is that it wasn't until the 17th century that the notion of disease even entered the ontology that we all share as part of Western culture. So as a famous physician, Thomas Sydenham, who observed the self-same phenomena that you observe in the thickness of a Socrates, you would observe in the thickness of a simpleton. And that was actually a dramatic statement to make at a time when people didn't think of diseases as being reproducible from one person to another, that they just assumed that all of us had abnormalities in the levels of our yellow bile or our black bile or whatever, and that it wasn't a uniform kind of disease that we might have, a disease that might lead to a uniform kind of treatment, but that each of us might just have a little bit too much phlegm or a little bit too much bile. Anyway, uh, over the next hundred years after that observation from Sydenham, there were a whole bunch of disease classifications that emerged. Basically, we, what was happening then is what we, almost what we see happening now in e-commerce. There were a hundred flowers, uh, not a thousand flowers, blooming. And uh, the good news was the emphasis became, became focused on understanding uh, pathophysiological findings at autopsy. The bad news was there was no consistency. And so very quickly, in 1853, the first International Statistical Congress was convened, specifically with the goal of coming up with a list of causes of death. And I, I, for, at least in biomedicine, this is probably the first, if you will, ontology that became widely used. The nomenclature got multiple, multiple revisions, as you see on the slide, and emerged uh, at the end of the 19th century as the International List of Causes of Death. Uh, if you now go to slide 15, uh, you'll see that in 1948, uh, the World Health Organization picked up the ICD. What was radical at that point was to recognize that people might be interested not only in things that make people die, but also in diseases that need to be understood for patients living. And the ICD emerged as the basis of including not only fatal diseases, but also non-fatal diseases. And by 1977, what we now call the ninth revision of ICD, or ICD-9, was, was released. And even that was not good enough. In 78, the clinical modifications were added to ICD-9, 
which made it valuable for all of the medical billing that now takes place in, in the U.S. and for many places else in the world. Now, if we look at uh, slide 16, you'll see just a small piece of the ICD. And I'm showing this to you not because this is beautiful the way SUMO is beautiful, not because it's beautiful the way the upper level of psych is beautiful, but to show you how ugly things are in the trenches when people who know nothing about formal ontology or philosophy start coming up with lists. This very small piece of the ICD shows you just the diagnoses that happen to deal with disorders of the back. And what you see is the code 724 is, uh, represents unspecified disorders of the back. And then you see other codes where there are numbers after the decimal point. And as you get more and more numbers after the decimal point, there's more and more specialization of the terms. But what's really crazy is that you really don't know what those specializations are. We don't know what the relationship is between specifically pain in the thoracic spine, which is 724.1, a specialization of 724, and uh, 724.7, which is disorders of the coccyx, presumably a sibling of pain in the thoracic spine, but you know, disorders of the coccyx, that little bone at the bottom of your spinal cord, um, involves lots of, a lot more things than, than simply back pain. So we see, for example, that there are a couple of codes which, are, which indicate that the meaning is identical. So 724.71 is an, one of my favorite ICD-9 codes. It's hypermobility of the coccyx. I don't know what hypermobility of the coccyx really is. I don't know what it would mean to have a hypermobile coccyx. You know, the mind boggles. But it's also interesting that it has exactly the same code as 724.71, which is coccycodynia, which basically means you have pain in the coccyx. And obviously, it might be painful to have your coccyx to, be, to have hypermobility. But again, the concepts ontologically should not be the same. And this is just a, 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 a very simple example of how a classification system that is used every day, that is the basis for 13% of our GDP, basically has very serious problems in its logical structure and its, and, and its organization. To go to slide 17, uh, just, to show, just to sort of emphasize this fact, what you see is a piece of ICD-9 uh, as it emerged in 1977. Uh, with the, there's a listing for occupational health uh, relating to uh, motor vehicle accidents and, in particular, bicycle accidents. And what you see are a handful of codes related to bicycle accidents. What I love, as you go to slide 18, is uh, by 1999, when ICD-10 was released, suddenly uh, the whole ontology just proliferated with now 587 codes for accidents. And what you see, and I'm realizing, ah, that the wiki's not allowing me to show you the slide, uh, show you the, the overlay. What you would have seen uh, is that um, there are whole kinds of, of codes in ICD-10 that are just absolutely charming. There's a code V31.22, which is occupant of three-wheeled motor vehicle injured in collision with pedal cycle, person on outside of vehicle, non-traffic accident while working for income. Uh, W65.40 is drowning and submersion while in bathtub, street and highway while engaged in sports activity. <laughs> I'm not sure what kind of sports activity people engage in in their bathtubs that lead to drowning, but the idea that there's, a, there's an explicit code and that people may find this code useful and reusable is actually quite remarkable. And I guess the point is, as you go to the next slide, which is slide 19, 
that you know, ICD-9 is just overlaid with so many different things and so many different uses, it's just crazy. ICD-9 is used for billing and reimbursement, for institutional planning, for disease surveillance and public health, for quality assurance, for economic modeling. This is, a, this is basically a terminology that was created to count dead people. And suddenly we see in, uh, at the end of the 20th century using the same set of structures for this whole host of, of, of things for which it was never intended. And what we see, of course, is that patient encounters get encoded by their physicians or by third, third parties, the ICD numbers, and it's really impossible to realize how varying people from varying perspectives will be using all these different codes. Obviously, the idea of hypermobility of the coccyx, if you're interested in reimbursement for a, an office visit, may have different meaning or significance if you're trying to do uh, institutional planning or economic modeling. So if you could start all over again, if you could do it from scratch, what you'd really like to do, of course, is have a list of diseases that are as well organized as those uh, upper-level concepts, upper concepts that we saw in SUMO and, and, and in OpenPsych. You want diseases with well-organized and well-defined relationships. You want them to have computer-understandable definitions. You want to be able to have good, well-defined rules for aggregating primitive concepts into complex descriptions, not enumerating all 500 ways in which you might drown in your bathtub. And you obviously want well-defined mechanisms for creating uh, specific views that are relevant depending on the way in which you're going to use the ontology. We don't have at all any kind of a system that would allow us to do all those things now in medicine. And I think that's a, that's a real challenge for us. Let me switch gears now and talk about the gene ontology, which I mentioned earlier. And then I'm, now I'm, I'm, a, I'm on slide 21. Another grassroots movement, a lot more recent in its origin than ICD, but basically showing you the same kind of mess. Gene ontology basically emerged because of a lot of things. One was basically the pressing need to standardize the names of human genes. Uh, when you look at the Human Genome Nomenclature Committee, what you find as you, as you look at the number of genes in the genome is that there's just enormous variance, that new genes are always being defined and added. Old gene names are being withdrawn. Gene names get changed. And it's very hard for most mortals and most scientists to keep track of all these changes in the list of the, uh, the 40,000 or so genes that comprise the genome. What's more important uh, for scientists, as you go to slide 22, is that you realize that the human genome is only part of the, pro part of the problem, because there are scientists all over the world who deal with a whole bunch of model organisms whom they study to death. Um, mice, rats, yeast, fruit flies, roundworms, slime molds, all kinds of things, even plants. And there are no enormous uh, g databases that store information on the genes and the gene products of all these different micro microorganisms, multicellular organisms, and, and, and animals and plants. And the problem is, until recently, there was no way to have those annotations have any kind of consistency. So a database for mouse genomics might talk about uh, proteins and genes very differently from a database about rat genomics, which would be very different from a database about yeast genomics, which really actually deals with a lot of the same kinds of things. And about five or ten, five years ago, there was a real recognition that if biologists were to be successful, they needed to overcome this Tower of Babel and have the same way of talking about genes and gene products across organisms. Because basically, they were talking about the same genes and the same proteins. And without the same nomenclature, they'd be in, in, in real trouble.
1998, the Gene Ontology Consortium was formed. And it represents basically a collaboration that initially was among a couple of rather three developers of model organism databases, the fruit fly database, the yeast database, and the mouse database. But now basically any biology group that cares about the genomics of almost any organism will be a member of the Gene Ontology Consortium. And the goal here is to produ produce a dynamic, controlled vocabulary that can be applied to basically all organism databases even knowing that the names of these genes, the identified roles of these proteins in the cells is, is accumulating and is changing, and there's a need to keep up with this incredibly rapid change. So the gene ontology, slide 24, basically has three separate ontologies of components. There's a component that talks about the molecular function of gene products. There's a component that talks about where those gene products get expressed within the cell. And there's an ontology that talks about what is the biological process for which that gene's products uh, might be relevant. And essentially, the gene ontology uses these terms uh, as attributes that are used to annotate the databases so that when you store a gene sequence in the database, you can tell what that gene is called, what it does, where it's located, uh, and so on. And most important, because the mouse database is using the same Go codes, gene ontology codes, as the rat database, then you can compare genes across databases. And because the yeast database is using the same Go, co Go codes, you can understand how cellular, cellular processes in the yeast are related to cellular processes in the rat. Major, major achievement for biologists and a very important step forward. So as I said, the ontology has this molecular function component, the cellular component, and the biological process component. And when you look at uh, the gene ontology, and there are a variety of tools for, for browsing the gene ontology. This is a, a web browser called Amigo, which is a great name. What you see are what these codes look like. And you realize that, again, the gene ontology is a lot like ICD. It's not like an ontology that we might, we as knowledge uh, developers might, might view as such. It doesn't necessarily have definitions or attributes of concepts. What it is is a directed graph of terms that define the elements of biological processes of uh, gene function and, and, and proteins. But Go has been absolutely successful in every way you could imagine. There are dozens of biologists around the world who are the active developers of the, of the gene ontology. Unlike most ontologies that are well described in the computer science literature, there are really dozens of people who are working actively all the time on extending the gene ontology. In fact, it's so bad, and I know the computer scientists on this call will freak, the gene ontology gets updated every 30 minutes. That, that version management problem is just absolutely uh, astonishing to me. But, you know, it's absolutely impossible for people to work in computational biology without making use of gene ontology terms. In the past five years, this grassroots ad hoc assemblage of terms has become absolutely indispensable for anybody in computational biology who cares about genes or gene function. And it's quite remarkable that this was an ontology created essentially with, with, with no uh, ontologists, no philosophers, no AI people. But there are real problems in the gene ontology. The ontologies are uh, represented in a very highly idiosyncratic format that's not compatible with any of the knowledge representation systems that uh, most of us would be using today. 
the format is based on this very simple, directed acyclic graph of concepts. There's no ability to interpret what's happening uh, in the graph. There's no easy way of adding new concepts without uh, basically having to follow the graph and guessing where a new concept might go. Basically, the, the knowledge representation is extremely informal. And lots of errors have crept into Go over the past five years. There are terms that actually appear multiple places in the ontology because nobody realized that they were duplicated. There are terms that have no superclass because people didn't know how to classify them. And most important, the, uh, uh, the ontology lacks defined relationships between terms, something which uh, admittedly the Go consortium is now trying to fix. But exactly what it means for one term to be related to another is just as the problem exists in ICD-9. You don't really know what it means for one term to be linked to another. There's no, there's no real semantics. And people enter most, most of the Go terms using a tool called DAGEdit for a directed acyclic graph editor. And this tool has been used by the, the dozens of people in the Go consortium to build this ontology. And it basically allows you to cre create a very large graph. You can annotate the, the nodes of the graph with things like synonym and a textual definition, which is all very good. But you don't have the ability to create the kind of knowledge representation that would allow the terms to be self-defining. You don't have the ability to create the kind of knowledge representation that would ensure that as new terms get added to the ontology, they actually end up in the right place. And that's obviously a real problem. As you can imagine, as, as, as things have gotten worse, as people have identified the problems, there's become this great tension in the Go community. There are biologists, the biologists who are really the content developers for the gene ontology, who still say they have pressing needs. These, uh, these, these gene product names keep changing. We understand more and more about what these gene products do. We have to quickly keep on adding to this Go ontology, because otherwise we'll never keep up with the science. And at the same time, they recognize that they're using what we would call an impoverished and non-standard knowledge representation system. But it's one that they happen to like and one that they happen to have grown accustomed to. Uh, but of course, because what they use is a non-standard system, there's no way of relating the Go ontology to other ontologies. And more important, I think, there are no standard modeling conventions to make sure that people are using the standard in a uniform way. This is driving the computer scientists absolutely crazy. Uh, those of us who are interested in, in ontology really are going nuts because Go is a hack. And all of this ad hoc kind of stuff, is, we believe, is going to make Go completely unusable and unmaintainable. What I want to just do to emphasize this point is just show you some slides from an absolutely wonderful keynote talk that Carol Goebel gave. From, Carol Goebel is at the University of Manchester. She was asked to give the keynote at a, a meeting called Standards and Ontologies for Functional Genomics, which took place about six weeks ago. And what, what Carol did, which really made very clear the schism between the grassroots ontology developers and the computer scientists who sort of entered the picture, is to sort of look at this as Romeo and Juliet and said there was a plague on both our houses. I'll just show you very quickly, and you can probably look after the talk in more detail, the abstract for Carol's talk. I put this up because Carol is the first person I have ever known who's given an abstract for a scientific meeting <laughs> in iambic pentameter. <laughs> And basically, in adopting the, 
prologue from Romeo and Juliet. Well, I guess I'll, I'll, um, I'll, I'll share with you part of it. Basically says that there are two households, both alike in dignity, in fair genomics, the country where, we're all, where, where these houses are apparently are, are located, we lay our scene. One is comforted by logic's rigor, claims ontology for the realm of pure, and the other, with blessed scientist vigor, acts hastily on models that endure. And uh, actually, in, in the most ad hominem way you could imagine, talked about computer scientists as the Montagues. One comforted by logic's rigor claims ontology for the realm of pure. And I will leave it for those of you who know these people who are pictured on the slide to understand the relationship here. As to uh, a bunch of, of, of people who really are concerned primarily about representation and methodology, but really don't understand the problems of the people whom she called the Capulets, who are blessed with scientist vigor and act hastily on models that endure, basically the life scientists who realize they have a pragmatic, practical problem to solve and just work quickly to do what's useful, basically to create uh, Go in the way that has, that, that has been generated. She also points out a number of philosophers, and those of you who know these people on the slide can chuckle, uh, as people who care ma mainly about the underlying logic and the best way to model ontology, but really don't want to roll up their sleeves and worry about knowledge representation or worry about the content itself. So, Tybalt, um, which house are you in? I'll show you in a second. <laughs> okay. Uh, so basically, uh, Carol drew this triangle of the knowledge representation Montagues, who are the end mechanism providers, the life scientist Capulets, who, have, who are basically want a means to an end and don't care about the, the beauty of the representation, and the philosophers, who may be spiritual guides and aesthetics, really are use, useful to nobody, in her words. <laughs> And basically, whom she, she wanted to do was emphasize the role of the prince. And in Romeo and Juliet, the prince, of course, is the guy who try to, tries to calm everybody at the end. The idea of identifying people who can try to bridge the gap between the Capulets and the Montague, Montagues, and obviously to uh, prevent the uh, great tragedy that right now the community is facing as we deal with uh, essentially the social problems of computer scientists who are convinced they know what to do, the biologists who are convinced that they know what to do, and the real need to be able to bring these groups together in order to have pragmatic representations that can be edited quickly by the biologists that will not get into the semantic messiness that the Go, that ICD-9, and all these other ontologies are headed for. Well, let me just stop now and, 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 and just make sure that everybody is on the same page. And now that I've been extremely contentious, see if uh, there are any comments or questions. Well, we were still online. Um, I have uh, one question, if I may. Uh, well, there's a lot of bad feedback. Sure. Um, your, your talk is extremely, um, extremely useful. Um, but one uh, practical um, question uh, that is, um, I'm sure you, you may have uh, been asked often is, if you pick a, a specific stance, uh, philosopher, capulet, or mon montage, and um, and want to you know to you know, to stake a claim on the ground and say, okay, I'm going to work on improving the part of an ontology that relates to this specific part of a bigger picture of ontology, like say a cleaner version of Go, say for example. How can you make it practical for some people to work, say, on you know, be the montage people of uh, of the ontology development, another group be the capitalist uh, part, another one to be the philosopher camp, and essentially deal with uh, change management, version control, updates, um, 
distributed knowledge development and all of that stuff that we know from uh, software engineering. Right. I don't, I, don't, I don't have the answer to that question because uh, essentially, as you see on the, on the current slide, which is slide 38, uh, as Carol Goebel summarized it, the problems really are more political and sociological than they are technical. We know how to create useful and uh, interesting and deep knowledge representations. We know how to approach the problem of uh, mining uh, sources to create the content that will go into ontologies. Um, what we don't know very well is how we can best bring those two groups together. I think one of the reasons that we have difficulty here is that we don't have in the world of ontologies what we have in the world of other kinds of scientific publication. Namely, we don't have peer review. Um, we have people busily creating ontologies for themselves, being able to use it for their narrow tasks, and being extremely successful. What we never hear about are the people who try to use those ontologies for, for those other tasks and fail miserably. We hear about people building knowledge representations of increasingly arcane dimensions. What we don't have a good sense for is how useful some of those um, representational distinctions really are in terms of the kinds of practical things that people want to say about the world. And for example, um, in the creation of OWL, which is probably the only really standardized ontology language that people are widely using, a lot of compromises were made in creating the description logic version of OWL, not because they were the right things to do, but because they wanted to come up with a representation that would be tractable for a description logic classifier, not necessarily because those distinctions were, were not relevant or, or were relevant for people who had particular models to build. And I think that's, that's a long-winded way of saying that the two groups have a lot of, uh, of, of understanding about what they want for their particular goals. For the two groups to come together without the kind of tragedy that Romeo and Juliet faced, I think we're going to have to have some kind of institutional structures that will promote the ability for peer review and a response to peer review so that people can understand what ontologies are good for and so that ontology developers will understand uh, from the critiques of others in, in, in different camps how they might move into, into, into a new world. Mark, this is Adam. Could I comment on your reply? Sure. Um, so just one, one assertion that you made about there not really being sort of lessons learned from applying uh, particular ontologies. I mean, I guess I just want to take minor exception to that, uh, at least in my own case for Sumo, you know, I've got a publication list of about, you know, 50 different publications where people have pulled Sumo down off the net and tried to use it for particular tasks that I had no involvement in and had not anticipated. So although I would like there to be a larger body and, uh, you know, sort of a deeper level of analysis for, like, which particular terms or which portions of the ontology were, were of more use than others, there is at least some of that analysis that, that I think people are looking for. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not denying that, Adam. I think what we, what we really need is to have a more institutional way of doing exactly that kind of thing. Um, I'm not saying we need consumer reports for ontologies. That's probably a bit uh, impractical and probably not useful. But there needs to be ways of annotating ontologies with use cases, with uh, information about experience, with ways in which uh, new users can identify distinctions that are not made, that should be made, distinctions that are made that are imprecise, so that those ontologies can evolve in response to feedback, and so that new users can get a better sense for why that ontology might be good for their problem or might not be. 
Right now, everybody uses Go because everybody's using it. And it sure would be nice to have some more formal way of knowing that Go is good for a particular task on the basis of a, a record of use that provides more details about where it's been, been helpful and also where it's not been helpful. Okay, I agree. Um, uh, so just to continue now, and I'm, I'm um, on slide 39, is that there are these widespread institutionalized efforts, just, just as Adam Sumo project, where there's a goal to bring it together to the philosophers to do things from the top down and make things beautiful. When you look at the real world, though, there's, there's not quite so much beauty. Uh, what you see is that everyone's getting into ontologies, and ontology development has become, as the slide says, a widespread cottage industry. What you see are professional societies who recognize there's a need to create ontologies. So, for example, the Micro-AG Expression Data Society is now working furiously on the MJET ontology to be able to describe microarray experiments and microarray data. The Human Protein Organization, HUPO, is trying to create an ontology that will capture all the experimental results uh, and procedures that are used for proteomics. We're seeing the government get into this. And so at the, around the same time that the gene ontology began, NCI created, started to create the NCI thesaurus. And I'll talk a lot more about that in a moment. Lots of stuff is happening at NIST, uh, where traditionally there's been a recognition of the need for ontologies as a way of bringing together diverse groups who might talk about the world in slightly different terms. And then among the biologists, not only do we see people creating Go, but the Go Consortium has created what is called the Open Biological Ontologies Library, which right now is uh, being populated mainly by academics, sort of working alone or in small groups, basically, basically throwing onto SourceForge a whole bunch of ontologies, all of which address different areas of biology, most of which are written in DAGED, and some of which use standard protégés I'll get to, and most of which are ostensibly quite useful for ontologies, uh, for ontology to work within biology, but at the same time, uh, none of which are peer-reviewed, none of which really define what they're, what they're good for. And for those of you who can see TIFF files, you'll see a fraction of some of the ontologies in the OBO library. And for those of you who don't TIFF, then uh, if you Google on uh, OBO, you'll probably have an opportunity to see what's in that library. Basically, though, what's interesting is that as all this stuff is happening at the grassroots among professional societies, among academics working in small groups or alone, government continues to be a really important driving force. Uh, and obviously, that's why many of you are meeting in Boston today. Um, there are very visible ontology efforts within a number of government agencies, including NIST and NIH and the VA and CDC. And one of the ones that is perhaps most visible to me is the one that takes place at NCI in terms of creating the Enterprise Vocabulary Service. But when you look at the NCI initiative and compare it with all the others, you see incredible variation in terms of the scope, in terms of how big or how small these ontologies are, in terms of representational sophistication, what kinds of knowledge representation languages people are using, in terms of openness of content, how easy it is to basically actually get to the stuff and opportunities for peer review, which in most cases are close to zero. So I think it's useful to talk about the NCI EVS, Enterprise Vocabulary Service. It basically was a result of a mandate that came from Rick Clouster in 1977, who was then the, the director of NCI, who basically wanted to have a repository that would allow him to know about every kind of thing that was funded by NCI, with the goal of being able to store all the science that went from the bench to the ben bedside 
and, and a goal of being able to improve and, and, and accelerate translational research. And one of the main ways by which this was going to be achieved was to create this integrative terminology, which now, in retrospect, we would view as an ontology. And so if you look uh, at slide 43, you'll see the very top level of what NCI calls its thesaurus, which represents the very top-level concepts. These are obviously much more low-level than the kinds of top-level concepts that Adam would talk about in SUMO. We see things like abnormal cell, anatomic structure, biological process. A lot of things that you can already understand have immediate correlates in the gene ontology. And of course, one of the problems is that the NCI thesaurus and the gene ontology don't talk to one another and represent relatively different views on the world, even though, even though they talk about the same kinds of concepts. And then you can go down a level, and you can see uh, on the next slide uh, very detailed information. In this case, detailed information about uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma as stored in the NCI thesaurus. And not surprisingly, the NCI thesaurus has very detailed information, more detailed than any other place that I know of, about cancer and about its manifestations. And the NCI thesaurus, as the slide says currently, has nearly 40,000 concepts at this level of granularity. And each concept has very detailed attributes, where for each concept, unlike as you see in Go, unlike as you see in IC, there are very detailed attributes and relationships that define how each concept is potentially related to every other concept in the ontology. And NCI thesaurus, like Go, has also been wildly successful. So the website gets enormous numbers of hits. Almost everybody involved in cancer research in some way or another turns to the NCI thesaurus. And with a new initiative at NCI called CABIG, the Bioinformatics Grid for Cancer, uh, the NCI thesaurus is taking on an even more important role. So when you look at the NCI thesaurus, you recognize that uh, what makes it stand out is that in addition to working on the content, NCI has worked dramatically on trying to come up with means by which the thesaurus should be built. And so there's a content model which is well defined. It turns out the NCI thesaurus is based on a proprietary description logic called Ontolog, which is marketed by a company called Apollon. But then it tries to leverage as many existing sources as possible, including MeSH, the medical subject setting for indexing the biomedical literature, uh, the VA's national drug formulary, the uh, the Drug Administration for reporting of adverse events, um, and basically the creation of unique content where it's needed for all the things that NCI cares about, like cancer genes and gene products and cancer diagnosis and so on. And wherever possible, the good news is the NCI thesaurus does link itself to other elements of the world. I think what's really important is that the thesaurus has this well-defined, well-structured means for editing even more so than the gene ontology, where there are designated thesaurus editors. And as you see at the uh, lower right of the box, people who work in a distributed fashion to edit their version of the thesaurus, to make changes all over the place, who then once a month have to send their change sets into a central editor who is going to work to then basically take the changes from the distributed editors, merge them all into one giant uh, thesaurus, then that becomes the, what is the candidate release, and after some testing becomes the definitive release, so that every month the results of this distributed uh, editing gets merged into a release which is uh, then made available to the world at large. 
I'm not sure NCI now, given the kinds of tools that are available, would want to use this batch editing, uh, conflict resolution, and merging, and, and, and distribution kind of model. But it's what they've been using for many years, and it seems to work reasonably well. Uh, may I make a comment here? Sure. Please, uh, it's Nicholas Foucault from JPL. Okay. Th this kind of editing and maintenance process uh, that NCI uses is very similar to uh, similar types of uh, um, expensive editing and maintenance processes that um, software-intensive projects, I've realized, need to be used, especially when it pertains to editing um, architecturally key elements like um, interfaces, APIs, um, various data formats, and whatnot. Absolutely. And so um, I'm not sure that your comment stands even um, about uh, whether they would use the same kind of process uh, if they were to redo this again today. Uh, it seems to me that this type of process is almost independent of uh, the tool base uh, that uh, is available to do it. The only question is uh, how expensive it is or are the Google tools uh, sufficiently adequate to support it. Right. Let me elaborate on that because that really is a key point. Um, the NCI recognizes that and they basically this model of distributed and batch integration of changes is something which Apollon, their, their commercial vendor, offered to them and basically is almost built into, not almost, is, is built into the tool set that they happen to use. Where it falls down uh, sometimes is that ontologies are not quite like software. Uh, that there's not a standard serialization for an ontology, for example, depending on how an ontology gets saved out to a file, serialization may change and therefore the standard kinds of uh, controls that are ordinarily used for software systems don't work quite so well for ontologies. But what's more important is that what people are interested in, particularly what NCI is interested in doing, is having rich relationships among the concepts in their ontologies with concepts elsewhere in the ontology, to be able to define what are the kinds of ways in which terms are related to one another so that they can have uh, the maximal semantic richness which, which they believe is possible. The problem is, if you're an ontology editor working by yourself in, an, in a distributed fashion, then when you make changes to an ontology and the way that terms that you are editing relate to other terms, you can't see how other ontology editors are also making changes to terms that might, might relate to the terms that you're changing. And one of the problems with uh, the current batch system is that the individual editors may not know until the end of the week when someone tries to reconcile all their terms with the terms that have been changed by everybody else how, how where the collisions have been, how their changes have impacted the, the, the changes made by other editors. And often there's a lot of recycling and repetition because there's not the ability to see in real time the ramifications of what you're doing. Mark? Yeah. Could you contrast the processes you were just describing with the way that ODP does its distributed, um, I probably don't want to use the word ontology here, but maybe taxonomy editing. Uh, Are you familiar with ODP? No, I'm not. Oh, okay. Then I guess that's that, that an unfair question. It's the Open Directory Project of Mozilla. And what you've got are editors all around the world who are editing this Open Directory Project that's supposedly indexing the entire web. And there's a, um, a protocol of, first of all, how you become an editor, um, which you, you have to apply and tell them that you're, you're a subject matter expert on something. And there's... Um, meta-editors, and uh, there's quite an elaborate protocol, um, the details of which I don't quite recall, that uh, is similar to the protocols you just outlined. Oh, yes. Is there to 
try to uh, organize this process. And I'm sort of skeptical that it, that it really would work for an ontology. It works here because it's really just, just a taxonomy. Uh, yeah. But I guess asking you to contrast that <laughs> isn't too fair. If you no, I'd actually like to learn more about it, Dean. Uh, it, sound, it, sounds, it sounds like it's very analogous to where NCI is thinking it may want to go. Yeah, okay. And, I, and certainly NCI does not have the empirical experience to know whether one approach is better than another. Yeah. They do know that they're not happy with the batch system because they do a lot of backtracking. We'll talk about that offline sometime. Yep. Okay. Uh, one more question, if I may. Sure. Um, are, 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 um, the problem that you've described about uh, maintenance and the distributed change management is uh, similar to two things. One is the lack, perhaps, of a of a semantic contract about um, making certain changes to the scope of an ontology, um, where the expectations that uh, others would depend on the concepts, relations, properties, and whatnot within that scope um, would have a contract. Um, and so it, it may be something that helps um, negotiate uh, the uh, effect of making local changes to others that depend on uh, the, the part of the ontology that is changing. And the other aspect is um, there's uh, some interesting work um, that I've seen um, uh, from in England uh, from Blackwood uh, or Blackwood, I forgot exactly the, the name. Um, where they've applied the, the notion of a theorems for free, um, in a sense to use a, a stronger mathematical formalism to prove that as long as we're not violating uh, certain properties uh, of um, at the abstract level, um, um, that uh, changes at the lower level um, should be compatible with um, whatever um, uh, contracts, if you will, um, we make um, as users of the ontology. Um, I'm sh I probably could um, give you some reference to the to where I've read this uh, this concept, but um, I haven't uh, seen it discussed much in in various ontology publications. If you could send me those references, I really appreciate it. it sounds okay. very very relevant. And may, may I ask uh, who was that was uh, making the comment just now? from uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, I, I beg your pardon, um, Nicholas Vukat oh, from oh, the Jet, oh, jet Propulsion yeah. Laboratory. Let me do a process check since we started late. Uh, I, I imagine we're going to lose, lose the folks in Boston soon. Is that correct? Susan O'Brand? Oh. Well, maybe we've lost them already. I'm sorry. No, we were on mute. We will be with you until 3 p.m. Okay, great. That helps me a lot in terms of, 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 of pacing things. Great. Thank you. Um, okay, and just the obvious uh, statement, the NCI thesaurus is not perfect. Um, in fact, it has lots of problems. The same kinds of problems that a lot of these other uh, initiatives have and where the philosophers of the group, so to speak, have... Uh, the philosophers outside of the group, I should say, have made criticism of what NCI is doing. So sometimes there are upper-level concepts that are used inconsistently or not at all. Uh, sometimes the, the ways in which concepts are defined in text may not actually reflect uh, where they fit in the hierarchy. And the other issue which NCI is well aware of and trying to address is that because they rely currently on a proprietary knowledge representation system, the, the ontologue system made by Apollon, uh, there's no ability to freely disseminate the ontology since the uh, the editor and the viewer is proprietary. And at the same time, 
until recently, even the semantics of ontolog were proprietary. Uh, now that's, that's changing, but it's really quite worrisome when you don't even know what your terms mean because the vendor has claimed that the, the semantics of the system should not be disclosed. But um, essentially, throughout the whole cottage industry that we call ontology development, what we see is you know, lots of stuff happening principally by content experts who, who really have little training in conceptual modeling. We see lots of development tools and lots of definition languages, which, like DAG-edit and, and the underlying DAG formalism, are really very limited in their expressiveness, are, are not helpful in being able to address the uh, ability to point out errors and, and to help users understand how to fix those errors. Um, although, yeah, just, just as, as NCI uses Ontolog and, and Go uses uh, DAG, there's really, in general, no dramatic use of recognized standards that would actually make the world interoperable. And uh, obviously, because most of these tools are proprietary, there's the possibility that they're also quite expensive and, e and not easy to get to. That being said, there's a lot of good news. Uh, the Montagues, the, the, uh, the biologists, really do want to get the modeling right. And the uh, knowledge representation folks do want to see their stuff used. And what's also quite helpful is that there now are, are open tools, open standards that are making it very hard as people get into the business today to justify the use of anything that's really closed or proprietary. And so what are the signs of change? Well, I've been recently attending a number of meetings where there are people who are creating ontologies of human anatomy, ontologies of mouse anatomy, ontologies of rat anatomy, ontology of developmental anatomy. And they're all trying to get in the same room and try to figure out why are their ontologies so different? Why is the content not, not more uniform? What are the overarching concepts that might actually allow these, these, these ontologies, to, if not to be merged, at least to be aligned? And I see that as a really positive change. Uh, Barry Smith, who's a philosopher, uh, is now becoming personally very engaged in trying to get the biomedical informatics people to, uh, to start doing things right. And it was most amusing at the large international medical informatics uh, meeting in San Francisco in September to see Barry camped out in the middle of the hotel lobby, basically nabbing anybody who walked by whom he identified as someone building a biomedical ontology, trying to grab them by the scruff of the neck and tell them how they ought to be using philosophical approaches and appropriate knowledge representation standards to do their work. You would think that would not be very well received. Uh, but amazingly, Barry got a lot of positive feedback from the people with whom he spoke. And we see a lot of dialogue now taking place between the philosophers and the biologists in a way which I never thought possible. NCI right now is piloting uh, the use of OWL and Protege as a way of managing the NCI thesaurus, which would bring them to a standard knowledge representation system other than Ontolog, and obviously a, an editing environment which was open source and widely available rather than one that was proprietary. We're seeing a lot of, of, of professional societies like MGED who are starting out from scratch using Protege and OWL, and I, and I view that as, as, as a positive development. And uh, downloads of Protege just continue to escalate, which obviously uh, makes me very gratified, although obviously I don't, I don't make any money off of this, but it's just nice to see the work uh, being used. And so if you were to go to uh, slide 53, you would see a screen dump of the Protege website. But those of you who can't see it can just go to protege.stanford.edu. And what you would see is the current usage statistics, which some of which I can summarize on the current slide. This is now slide 54. And basically, what has just been remarkable to us is that ever since we made Protege open source in January of 01, 
the number of product registrations has just been unbelievable. So right now we have between 200 and 250 people every week who download Protege and register uh, in order to be Protege users. And there may even be more downloads because you actually don't have to register in order to download the thing. A lot of these people undoubtedly download the, the, the system and never use it. So exactly how many people we have using Protege right now, we don't know. Uh, it's certainly in the many thousands. Uh, whether it's the 22,000-odd people who have actually registered is really impossible for us to know. But uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Protege, I'll sort of give you a flavor for what, what, it, what it accomplishes. It allows you to edit both ontologies and knowledge bases, provides an open source way of doing that, obviously, and a, and a lot of people distributed around the world to use the plug-in feature of Protege to, to add lots of new features. What I think is nice about Protege, and again, I realize I'm, I have my own vested interest, is that we built the system so that it's open. And it's open in a lot of ways, including the, the ways of which, in which it can re represent knowledge. So it can store information in clips, which is a very popular knowledge representation framework. We can write things out as UML, as XML schema, as RDF, as topic maps even. And what has been really important to us in the past year is the facility within Protege to represent ontologies in the ontology web language, where now I would say we have probably 500 to 1,000 of our users who are using Protege expressly in order to write ontologies in OWL. Um, and I think Protege is successful not because of anything great that we've done, but because we've created a user community that has been successful. So the plugin architecture, I think, is very flexible, but now we have about 89 plugins available for Protege, only a handful of which were developed at Stanford. Most of these plugins come from people all over the world. And we collaboration with our users allows very rapid debugging and fixing the code. And basically, we have a system now which is relatively bug-free, and the bug, bugs get identified to us within milliseconds of each new release, which is really quite gratifying. There's an annual users group meeting, which is where people get together to talk about Protege. And perhaps what was most gratifying for us was that the last users group meeting, which was held on the NIH campus in July, attracted over 200 people, most of whom were there to talk to one another, not to talk to any of the Stanford crowd. And the idea that the, the community of users has basically taken on a life of its own is, is just very, very gratifying from our perspective. So what do we see happening? Well, we see, as I said, NCI is experimenting with Protege as the basis for a new version of the NCI thesaurus in OWL, which obviously would then uh, not be dependent on closed or proprietary representations and which would be more readily available, you know, at least a W3C recommendation. Uh, we're seeing the biopathways people migrate to Protege OWL, and that's been very gratifying, again, because this is very important group of people at the grassroots creating biomedical ontologies that have, uh, had, have had wide use. Um, and we're seeing lots of other ontologies showing up um, all over the web using Protege that we really don't know much about that seem incredibly important. There's, for example, a, a content standard for geospatial metadata that's using Protege. I know that there's a marine uh, science institute that is now using Protege for new ontology. This, it's basically, we can't keep track of what's happening at the grassroots, but we're very grateful that unlike the kind of ad hoc representation systems and ad hoc approaches that people were using previously, we're now seeing lots of attention to knowledge representation standards and real concern about modeling uh, in the most open and in the most reasonable and the most reproducible and scalable way possible. And then we're seeing stuff that we don't understand at all. Um, 
we know that some folks in Egypt are creating large ontologies of agriculture. And I wish I could tell you what these ontologies show, but we're at least uh, amused and excited to see the kind of internationalization that's taking place in, 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 the, in the use of our tools. So basically, what I'm hoping we're going to see over the next few years, and obviously this, this will take time and it will take a lot of work to build community and to work on some of the social problems, is obviously the advent of not only Protege, but other tools that are widely available, that are open source, that are easy to use, and that provide a basis for people building ontologies not in arcane, idiosyncratic ways, but by using open standards and being able to see the community of users of these tools really expand with the ability to provide feedback with one, to one another, both on the tools that they're using, but more important, on the content that they're developing. So basically, what we're seeing uh, is government and professional societies basically uh, setting expectations regarding standards for new ontologies. Uh, what we were hoping to see increasingly are government professional societies basically investing in educational programs. Because really, the Montagues and the Capulets are not going to talk to one another without some kind of catalyst. And I think what I'm hoping will happen is that the, the professional societies who want their ontologies to move to more current standards, and the government, who obviously has a vested interest, interest in this, will do what is possible to try to bring people together to ensure that we build our new systems based on standards, and standards both for representation and for modeling, rather than in the ad hoc way, which has been so common. And obviously, what will be very important are demonstration projects uh, that communicate to potential developers uh, of, of future ontologies, basically, what are the strengths and weaknesses of, of, of different modeling guidelines, of different tools, of different languages that are important for building ontologies. So I think really we're getting back to this, that notion of peer review, something which has been terribly absent from the kind of stuff we've seen to date. And so really right now, oh, go ahead. Is it a, a question? Okay, so, so right now really we have a thousand flowers blooming, um, and we're seeing ontologies being developed not really from the top down, but from the bottom up. We're seeing them being them, we're seeing ontologies being developed from every sector of academia. We're seeing people with industrial interests. We're seeing government with these interests. And what is important is that many of these ontologies have been proven extraordinarily useful to the people who build them, but at the same time turn out to be either structurally flawed, have uncertain semantics, uh, or are based on representation systems which are not scalable or maintainable or compatible with any other standards. And right now, which for, what, what for me is very exciting, is not only to see the, the thousand flowers blooming and the interest of on, in ontologies taking such strong uh, footedness at the grassroots, but I think we're finally at a stage where we have a number of candidate tools and representation languages that are going to out of the grassroots where we're going to have the ability to create durable and maintainable ontologies. And I think that's going to happen basically as we can educate people better, as we can have better demonstration projects, and as we can have better expectation of, of, of standards and, 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 and features in a way which will bring the people who are building ontologies now into a world where they understand what they can gain from knowledge representation standards, from philosophical approaches to building ontologies, and basically all the things that they need to make their ontologies more robust. So that infrastructure is now in place, and, and really what the next step is, is to build new ontologies that can take advantage of this kind of thing, 
We know that there are all sorts of new ontologies that are on the, uh, you know, on the dock for people to build, environmental health, phenotypic expression, developmental biology, all kinds of really hot stuff right now in a variety of communities. And I think we finally have tools and languages that will let us do it. And basically now what we need more than anything else is the will and the educational opportunities and the feedback that will allow all that to happen. And so there I'll stop. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mark. That was a wonderful presentation. Uh, since uh, Susan and her group will uh, be dropping off the call, uh, maybe any final comments from the group at NSF? I think I, in the interest of time, I think I would just like to say, uh, on behalf of all of us here, Mark, thank you very much for a really uh, extraordinary presentation. And I think uh, maybe some of us uh, certainly are pleased that we're in a position uh, from our uh, discussion this morning that we're turning to OWL and Protégé to explore how we can make our reference models come to life. And we really look forward to uh, learning about ontologies through this process and with your community and with Peter's community. And we do uh, thank you very much, uh, Peter, as well, for uh, inviting uh, us to be a part of your session this afternoon. Thanks. It's been a lot of fun talking about this stuff. Great. Thank you.